We're in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. The book of Ephesians is essentially a letter that a leader in the early church by the name of Paul the Apostle writes to the first Christians in the region of Ephesus. And we start chapter 2 today. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So big, long passage, and what I'd like to do is just break it down piece by piece. The first part states, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now this is offensive to the modern ear because modern people generally think we're good people. You know, we we don't say we're perfect, but we typically generally for the most part think we're not that bad. So we say things like, you know, I got my insecurities. I I got some problems and some hiccups. I got some leftover dysfunction from my childhood, but I'm working on it, man. I'm I'm not that, I'm, I'm not that bad. And then um, in our culture, the second anyone tries to start and maybe look critically upon the life they're living and maybe they own up to the fact that they've made some serious mistakes, they've harmed people immensely, the second you start to even remotely think in categories of sin, our culture has trained us to go, oh, no, 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 you're not, you're not bad. You're, you're great. And then we have sayings and slogans that have been canonized in order to get someone out of that critical thought. We say things like, no, 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 no. No, you're, you're great. You're perfect just the way you are. Don't change anything about yourself. Don't let anyone tell you to be different than who you are. Follow your heart. And these sayings and slogans are so ingrained in our culture that even to challenge the presuppositions that they're built upon, you immediately get pushback. And, you know, some of you have used those kind of sayings or slogans, and there's a context in which you're trying to be encouraging, and I get it. You know, you want to encourage someone, but for the most part, the statements, when taken to their logical extension, I mean, are are foolish. Like, just you know, I've joked around about this before. It's it's like not even funny anymore. It's like you're perfect just the way you are. Okay, try being married for ten years. Think, you know, honey, my mom told me to never change anything about myself, that I'm perfect just the way, I shouldn't be different for anyone. It's like, are you kidding me? Try to make that work. (laughs) Try and make that work. You can't even get a puppy without changing your behavior. I mean, that puppy will radically test you, will change things about you. But the sayings and slogans reinforce this kind of ideology. And by the way, our culture... um, trains us to to believe these sayings and slogans in the songs that we sing. And so I'll go ahead and start off by sounding like the religious nutcase right off the bat, because you guys have no idea what's coming anyway. Um, Look at what your kids are singing. Look at the cartoons. Look at the messages. They don't come out straight up and sound evil, but it's all reinforcing an ideology that's based upon this idea. You're perfect the way you are. Listen to your heart. Don't change anything about yourself. 
And the first Christians not only did not say those things, they went the polar opposite direction and were insistent that you're not only not perfect, you're dead in sin. You're dead in sin and wickedness. And you walk in that deadness. That word walk right there is a Greek term, peripateo. It's a Greek term, but Paul who's writing is a Jewish thinker. So he has a Jewish concept most likely in the back of his mind. And the Jewish word and concept for walk or peripateo is halakha. And halakha literally means to walk, but you understand the metaphoric sense because we use it today, right? How's your walk before God? How's your walk with the Lord? And what we mean by that is how are you behaving? How are you living? How are you acting in light of God's truth? And so in the Jewish world, there was a law that God had, and it was found in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We say this often, but there was 613 rules, commands, and statutes in the law. And so your halakha in Paul's day was how one lived in light of the sum total of God's revealed law. And so if you were walking in light of that, you would be walking with the Lord. Your halakha would be righteous before the Lord. What Paul is doing is he's saying that your walk is the inverted halakha. It's an evil one. You do evil. You're wicked. You're dead in sin. You do evil all of the time. That's your walk. You are dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. There's an image that is used to describe our state before Christ, humanity's condition before Jesus intervenes. And some of you might have seen or heard this, this image or story, but it wants you to picture uh, yourself as a drowning victim. Like say you're in the ocean. It's, it's, you can't swim and you're trying to stay afloat and you're drowning and you're gulping water and you're screaming out for help. And then right before you go down and die, a hand reaches out for you and pulls you into the boat, puts a life vest on you, gives you hand warmers. All right, buddy. I made up the hand warmers part, but the rest of it, do you know the, the, have you heard something like that? It's like you're drowning and Christ saves you from the water. Okay, many of you have heard something like that. That's a fine image, but the first Christians would want you to go even further. They would want you to picture yourself not as drowning, but as a dead man. So picture yourself dead, buried, in the coffin, in the casket. And you're conscious, but it, it, it's, it's as if you're dead. Now, already, some of you are like, you know, the claustrophobic, claustrophobic type. You're like, I, I don't want to picture myself in, in that. It's like, you, well, just, just go for a little bit. It won't last long. But, you know, if you were buried alive, your first reaction is, you know, what, what are you going to do? You're going to start to see you have very little movement. And that's, that's terrifying alone, right? To be restricted of movement is, is, a, is a very scary thing. And you're, that's when you tell yourself, okay, okay, don't panic. Don't panic. Because if you panic, it's not going to do any good. You're just going to use up all your energy. And oh, wait, there's limited oxygen. I don't want to lose up oxygen. So I, so I don't want to panic. I want to be as still as possible. But as the oxygen goes down and you can feel it, you start to panic and you start to do this because in, in those crazy situations, you're not thinking logical. 
Like the, the logical mind isn't operating. You're just frantically panicking and you're breathing and you realize you're running out of air and you could actually feel it's like the, the air is thinner and you're, lo- you're thinking about death and you're terrified and there's a horror overtaking you. And in that moment, as you're panicking and running out of air, you begin to hear what sounds like a shovel digging into the dirt. And you hear it and then it's, it's getting louder. It's getting louder and you're almost out of air, but you're, for the first time, you're allowing yourself to have some hope. Some, someone's coming for me. Someone's going to dig me out of this grave. Someone's going to dig me out. And then you hear the shovel hit the wood. And just as you're about to, to run out of air, the shovel breaks through and says, <gasps> and the sunshine comes in. You're like, I'm safe. I'm saved. <sighs> but then you see the one who saved you and you immediately become overtaken with fear. You get overtaken with a terror that is greater than the terror of the coffin. And so you immediately grab the broken pieces of of wood and dirt and earth and try to rebury yourself because you don't want anything to do with the one who is saving you. A terror greater than the coffin overtakes you. You may be saying, what sense does that make? Of course I'd want to get out of there. I don't care who saved me. This is critical. There is a good, so good, that the terror it brings is greater than evil. Because when you see this goodness, you realize you have more in common with evil than with it. You are more akin to darkness. You are more a child of malice than anything bearing remotely any semblance to this goodness. There is a light so bright, it brings fear. There is a good so good that when you behold it, you realize you've got nothing in common with it. There is a radiance brighter than a thousand stars. The biblical prophets in the Old Testament encounter this presence, encounter this goodness. There's a story of one prophet who is brought into the throne room of God and God's presence and his goodness is covered by angels, by cherubim. And even in that condition, upon beholding the guarded presence of this goodness, this prophet says, woe is to me for I am dama, undone. Dama means to be undone, to be utterly destroyed. It's this idea that when the sinful man is brought into the presence of that which is pure goodness, he is being torn apart at the very fabric of his being. See, the offensive part of scripture is that it's not only that you were dead in a coffin. It's that if Christ came to dig you out of that coffin, you would run and hide because you were an enemy of God. You didn't want anything to do with him. In your heart, you hated him. And so when you see the one who saves you and you see your enemy there, the terror of the coffin is less than the terror of the goodness before you. And that's like, no one wanted to come to church and hear that today. You're an enemy of God, who even if he tried to save you, you'd run from it. But by the way, Uh, God pursuing people and the human running and hiding from him occurs in scripture again and again and again. You didn't want God. He was your enemy. And so this is like, uh, you know, those old boxing matches, those 15 round ones. 
Paul the apostle is going to be like, you're dead in your sin in which you once walked. You're an enemy of God. And he goes on and it just gets worse. As he says, you are in this state of deadness and sin because you follow three influences or three spheres of influence. And he lists them. You follow the course of this world. You follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <clears throat> so I've underlined the three influences that you follow. It's like, you're dead in sin. You're an enemy of Christ. You'd run from him even if he saved you. Your halakha is evil because you follow the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, namely Satan, and the passions of your own flesh. In other words, your own human nature. It's like, boom, it's again, again, and again. First off, course of this world. When Paul uses the word world, he's not using it in the sense of, for God so loved the world. The word world for Paul in this sense means the systems, powers, and institutions that are presently at work against the rule and reign of Christ. It's the systems, the powers, and the institutions that are currently at work against and opposed to the rule and reign of Christ. And the world is at work in the world. And if you're a Christian, you have to develop the eyes to see where the world is at work in the world. And there's dozens of areas that are like painfully obvious. Like it's painfully obvious the world is at work in Hollywood, in the entertainment industry, in politics. And in my strong opinion, also education, because if you can rewire the way people think about the world, it will distort their understanding of reality. So the world is at work in many areas. And Paul says, you follow it. Before Christ's intervention, you follow it. And worse than that, you also follow the prince of the power of the air, namely Satan. And last week, Pastor Sam spoke on this idea, so I'm not gonna spend much time on this, but he talked about how as modern people, we presuppose that that which is material is that which is most real. And so we're, we're all materialist. We think the most real things in life are things that you could touch, taste, see, put in a te- test tube, measure. Um, and if you're a religious person or, and you believe in the spiritual world, um, nobody's gonna say like, well, you're wrong because God forbid anyone in this culture ever makes an exclusive statement, but they're gonna kind of say something like, oh, you're re- you believe in spiritual, th- yeah, I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad it helps you. Um, the idea of a tooth fairy helped my child. And as he matured, you know, he grew out of it. So let's see what happens. And it's because there's this idea is like, real is concrete, physical. But that, that, that whole idea is absurd. And even underneath that, we, we have this idea that that which is most real is always immaterial. So for instance, say uh, love unless you think love is merely just the product of hormones and chemical reactions to try to get the the species or tribe to propagate, you think love is a very powerful force. That's immaterial. Mathematics are immaterial. They exist in the abstract. Morality is immaterial. And so the first Christians, along with most people who have lived on this earth, believed that there were things other than the material realm. 
They believed in spiritual realities, spiritual powers and principalities. And the chief of these spiritual beings was Satan or the prince of the power of the air. And Paul's statement in this 15 round boxing match where you're just getting beat up the whole way, it's like a bad Rocky movie, man. Just boom, boom. Is that not only do you follow the course of the world, you follow Satan. And then third, maybe most offensive of all, he says you follow the passions of your flesh. Now, why would that be the most offensive? Because he's basically saying you're dead in sin, you're evil all of the time. Even if Christ saved you, you wouldn't take it because you're his enemy. You follow the course of the world. You follow Satan. And you know why you do all that? Because you like it like that. That's what your heart prefers. Your human desires, the passions of your flesh. The word for flesh here is sarks. It can mean literally like human flesh, but it's talking about your nature, what you desire. What does your heart want? And so your heart likes it that way. And because of that, another blow, he says, because of all of these things, you by nature are children of wrath. What a horrible phrase. Like that should never even be put on a slide, right? Children, nice, loving, cute. We love kids. Wrath, not good. No one wants it. We don't even like to talk about it. And we certainly don't like to ascribe to God wrath. We don't even like to ascribe to him anger. Because as modern people, we don't believe in necessarily a God, but if there is a God, you know, he's pretty chill. He don't get angry. He's not mad, he's cool, man. He's not gonna be angry. And the first Christians, again, are insistent here. God looks down upon humanity and he's angry. He's angry. Angry to the point of wrath. He's, he's upset. And you just need to look at human history to see why he might be upset. But we've developed all kinds of tools and methods to convince ourselves that we're all pretty much generally good people, that every so often there's some bad ones among us. It's like I said earlier, the second someone owns up to the fact that they might have done serious wrong in their life, no, 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 you're, you're, you're perfect. The sayings and slogans come in. You play some Disney songs for them. Right, you know, Hakuna Matata, bro. And then what we do is we kind of psychologize terms of sin so that it's not sin, it's, you know, I got some insecurities. I got some, some hangups. Again, this is just a little leftover dysfunction from my upbringing. It's like the first Christian's like, no, you're wicked, man. You're wicked. You do wrong. You're selfish. You're greedy. But we generally think we are good people. And I've used this joke before, but it, it's, it's funny because you hear people say it, you know? You think you're a bad person? Nah, you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I, you know, got my problems, but I'm, I'm no Hitler. You know, if you've been here, I've said this like three times because I keep hearing it. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm no Hitler in which you just, you just start clapping, man. Good for you. You're not as bad as the archetypical modern figure of Satan. Like you pick the worst person on planet earth to compare yourself to. Nice goalpost there, man. It's like, you're not as bad as Hitler. Congratulations. Now here's, here's the scary truth is that most of us are decent people because we've been socialized to be moderately decent human beings. We've been socialized to be like just a hair above moderately, uh, moderately decent human beings. This is what I mean by that. You exist in a culture, climate, and context where 
doing good is rewarded and doing bad is punished. So for instance, stealing is punished, murder is punished. Um, But there's a thousand ways in which that works out. And some of you know this intuitively. You didn't get like in fourth grade, you realized I'm not getting straight A's for any good reason. I'm getting straight A's because I get 50 bucks from mom and dad if I get straight A's. Some of you know this. That's the only reason why you behaved is because of the reward. It wasn't for the pursuit of goodness in and of itself. And you just expand that out into a thousand different areas. We live in a country, in a context, in a culture where certain behaviors are rewarded and certain bad behaviors are punished. And so most Americans, in light of that, become moderately decent human beings, not because necessarily they pursue truth, goodness, and virtue as means in and of themselves, because it just, it just helps us. You know, you drive the speed limit, not because you desire to, but because you'll be punished if you don't. You know, and some of you, I thank God there's speeding laws. Kevin Curzonabe's not here. He's at another meeting. That's a special message for him, man. Pastor Kevin Curzonabe drives crazy. Don't get in the car with that man. In fact, yeah, never mind. I'm not going to say who the bad drivers are. I'm just going to say the only one besides Sam and myself, I don't know the other one. That's all I'll say. As we got some bad, crazy, crazy speedy drivers. But you get what I'm saying. You obey the law, not necessarily because your heart desires. So we, we become moderately decent human beings because of conditions put on us. Think about this. What if you were raised in a culture, in a tribe that taught you since birth, the tribe on the other side of the river is bad and we should kill them. The tribe on the other side of the river, they're bad guys. And since birth, you're taught they're the evil ones, they're the bad guys, and your whole life is filled with stories and myths about how the great leaders of your tribe crossed the river and slayed their enemies. And then you also know horror stories of when the tribe across the river crossed over and kidnapped some of your people and killed some of your people. In fact, your great uncle was killed by the tribe across the river. And you're brought up to believe that if you're going to be a good man in this tribe, you grew up to be big and strong so you could kill as many of them as possible. You think like at the age of seven, you wake up and go, you know what? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. We shouldn't hate our enemies. We should bless them. When the people from the other side of the river persecute us, we should bless them and pray for them. Like you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. And what history has taught us is that you not only won't do that, but most of us are capable of committing evil far greater than that. History is the history of war. That's what humanity has done, right? We have little moments of peace and then we all go kill each other again. And in war, there is horrific things done. Torture, murder, slaughter, and a host of others. One of the worst things that you see develop in war is genocide where a whole people group slaughters another whole people group. And when you look at that, you go, how could, how could people do that? You know what I mean? How could these millions of people actively or passively participate in the slaughter of a whole group of people? How could, how could you do that? And, and the scary thing is, though, 
is that it's not just like one or two people that participate in that stuff. It's whole cultures or maybe 5% of the people resisted. And so we can look arrogantly and say, you know, show me those monsters. What type of monster could, could actively or passively contribute to the murder of slaughter of men, women, and children of a whole people group? Show me the faces of those monsters. And the scary thing that history teaches us is that if you go looking for the faces of those monsters, you're going to find faces of people who look a lot like the people to your left and to your right. They look just as human as you, made in the image of God. And it goes on whole scale. Maybe five, ten percent of the people do right. If you were put in a situation where you've been taught otherwise since birth, or in a situation where there's scarcity of resources, kill or be killed, you'd be surprised what a human could do. And so Paul paints this horrible picture of us. He says, This is the state of humanity. Humanity has rebelled against God and they are now dead in trespasses and sin. They walk in wickedness. They have made God their enemy. They follow the course of this world. They follow the prince of the power of the air. What's worse is they do all of this because their own human nature. They like it. And because of all of that, they've become children of wrath without hope. And at this point, you know, modern people are tempted to go. The answer is to become a good person, to look deep inside you. Look deep inside your heart and find the spark of goodness that's there. You know, how very Disney of us. And what the first Christians were saying is that if you look inside your heart, if you look to yourself, your heart will betray and deceive you. You need something from the outside. That which is by nature a child of wrath cannot change themselves. They need some external agent to bring about that change. And outside of the external agent, you are dead in sin, buried in the coffin without hope. So this is the, I mean, this is the, this is like Rocky, um, the Rocky where Rocky should have thrown in the towel, man, because his boy Apollo was just getting beat the whole time, the whole thing. It says hit after hit after hit. He's like, give it a rest, throw in the towel. And Paul takes us to this point. And then right here is one of the greatest pivots in the entirety of scripture. You've been hearing bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, and then a pivot, a change, and a breath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest pivots, you had no hope but God who is rich in mercy, showed you grace. See, we couldn't find the answer within. Humanity couldn't find their solution. So the external agent, someone from the outside had to come in and change who we are. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. It is the victory of Jesus over all things. The victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, death, the world, and quite unexpectedly and scandalously, you. He had to overcome you and your will because you made him your enemy. And so go back to that image. Christ is digging, digging you out of the coffin, out of the grave, out of the casket. You get the breath of fresh air. And when you see the radiance of the one who is saving you, you turn in fear. So what does Christ do? He stays by your side and calms your spirit. I know this doesn't make sense. I know you're scared. I know this not all going to make sense right away. But I love you. Now, immediately, if you're a parent or a grandparent or you've worked with small children, uh, you know how this works intuitively, right? Uh, if you're working with a toddler, they often lose their minds. You know what I'm talking about? They like lose their mind. And you mean good for the toddler. You know, you're trying to put the two-year-old in the car seat. Why? Because you love the two-year-old. You don't want to get in a car accident and have harm come to the two-year-old. The two-year-old does not get that. They, for whatever reason, now perceive you as the enemy, and they've lost it. It's just, I mean, it's horrible. They're, that's the enemy right there, and they ain't going to let you buckle them up. And you can't, at that point, you don't begin to reason with the talk. Now, baby, I know you don't understand, but the car seat makes it safe. I know it's a little tight, um, but there's a lot of things. We have to do this for your safety, and there's a great argument about why it's a law. Some people think there's government overreach and they should just lay off. And um, you, don't, you don't reason with the child like that. You don't reason with it. What do you do? I love you. I love you. Trust me. I know you don't understand. I know you don't understand. Come on, just calm down until you can buckle the child in. Some of you, you know, you're not the most patient person in the world. Saying, I don't wait for that, man. I just, that's the way it's going to be. Um, but you let the child calm. And so Christ digs you out of the grave, and you're like a toddler. There's no rhyme, reason, no logic or rational idea is going to calm you down. But the presence of Christ calms your spirit to the point where by faith you receive his grace. And you get changed from the inside out. Paul goes on to describe this grace. One of the most popular verses in all of scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So here's the inner logic of this. You were dead in sin and buried and you didn't want anything to do with God. But he showed you grace because of the riches of his mercy. Now, because of that, that means your salvation, your receiving of this grace was not accomplished by human effort or human achievement. And if there's no human effort or human achievement in the receiving of this grace by faith, then no one can boast. No one could brag. No one gets to say, you know, I'm a Christian because, you know, I examined uh, the evidence and I'm really smart and uh, God really wanted me on his team because uh, I brought some things to the table, some, some things he could use. You were dead in the grave without hope and enemy of God, but because the riches of his mercy, he desired to show you grace. 
and he made you alive in Christ Jesus and he dug you out and put your feet on the ground. And so there's no room to boast. No room to boast. There's only one thing you could boast about if you're a Christian. You know what it is? I boast in Christ crucified. Christ crucified and resurrected on my behalf. And so when you look out the world, there's a temptation. And believe me, I know the temptation. It's, you see people, you know? What's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? And there's a temptation to think that, look, I, I got my act together. I'm so, dude, you were dead. You were dead. You don't get to look at the rest of the world and say, oh, look at these low lifes, these bums, man. They just need to get their act together, pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps. You were dead. You were dead in the grave. You don't get to look at the social outcasts. You don't get to look at, like in Bible times, look down with disgust upon the prostitute or the promiscuous woman. You were dead in your sin without hope. Christ made you alive. You don't get to look down upon this person. If they just thought the way I think, if they just vote the way I, I, I vote, if they dress and they advance themselves, man, why didn't they come to the conclusion of Jesus? You were dead. God dug you out. There's no grounds to boast in human effort or human achievement. That's not to say there's not wrong behavior in the world. Paul is going to be very clear on that. But you don't get to brag about your uprightness. You don't get to brag about your moral achievements because you were dead and God made you alive. And Anything good in your life has sprouted from his grace, not yours. There's a second layer to the inner logic of grace. So one says... You don't get to boast. You don't get to look down upon anybody. The other is some good news because it says that God gave us grace when we were an enemy, which means Christ died for us at our worst. He didn't die for us when we got our act together, like on our best day. So it's not as if like there's say, um, I'm going to use Drew Dowler. He's in the back worship leader, Drew Dowler. It's not as if God was looking at Drew Dowler and seeing him become a better person. And God says, next Tuesday, Drew Dowler is finally going to cross the threshold where I'm going to want him on the team. You know, he's not there yet. He's going to, he's keep on working, you know, his wife's working with him. He's a little rough around the edges, but he's going to progress to a point. Now he's good enough to be a Christian. Now he's good enough for me to show off my grace to. It's like, that's not the way it works. Christ died for you when you were an enemy and dead, which means you at your very worst is the person Christ died for. It's not the best version of you. It's not like God finally showed me grace and loved and accepted me when I became the better husband, the better, the better wife, the better parent. When I started reading my Bible every day and, and tithing to church, then God said, that's a Christian. God saw you dead and desired to show you his grace. And that's good news because, man, if you could project in this room all your sins, your faults, and failures, and everyone could see it, you'd run out of the room. If you could see everything I've said, everything I thought, and all of a sudden God were to put it on display, I wouldn't finish this sermon. I'd run to my car and leave Gilroy. Because you know, man, if you put all of that to bear, you were put naked before God, what would you do? Well, you'd run and hide. 
you'd, fr- you'd run from him. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he sees you at your very worst and gives you his grace. So it's you at rock bottom. It's you when you swore off this bad behavior and then you do it the next day. You know what I mean? I will never do this again and then you do it the next day. It's, it's, I will never drink again. I will never look at pornography again. I'll never talk to my kids like that again. And then you do it. And in shame, you run and hide. No, no. When you went to the bottle again, when you were passed out on the bathroom floor with the needle in hand, when you abandoned your kids, when you left the life in your womb, you at your very worst, when you gossiped and slander and hurt the ones you swore to love, it's at those moments that Christ says, my grace is sufficient. My grace and my mercy covers that sin. Christ finds you dead in the grave, gets his hands dirty, gets the shovel and digs you out and waits patiently for your spirit to calm. Now, because of this, Paul says, Everything is changed. Everything is new. You've been saved by grace through faith. You can't boast. It's not your own doing. And now you need to understand verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship. Now here's, here's like the great turnaround. Paul begins by saying you're dead in sin. And now he ends this, this section by saying you're his workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship here is poema. Throughout the years, it eventually is where we get our word poem for, but in in Paul's day, it meant more of like, um, picture a craftsman, a a carpenter or a painter, and and let's say the carpenter is working on a project and he's taking his time and he's a master carpenter. And when he's finally done, he takes the, the carving and he puts it on the table. The masterpiece of the master craftsman is the poema. The workmanship. So, before Christ, dead in sin. But because Christ, who is rich in mercy, showed you grace, now, the carpenter's masterpiece. Tiny, insignificant you are more glorious than sun and moon and star. You started off dead in sin and now you're out on the table for the world to see. And because of that, it says, we have been created, newly created in Christ Jesus for good works with which God prepared beforehand. Now, this is a crazy concept. The Bible says that God prepared good works for you before the foundations of the world. So grace is freely given. It changes you from the outside and then comes in and changes who you are. But then once you receive grace and it's sprouted in your life, it begins to bear fruit. And Paul is making the claim that God has prepared in his sovereignty good works for you to walk in. And he's prepared those before the foundation of the world. Now, if you were just to put that into practice, it would reorient your life. Like as you left this room, you would go, God before the foundations of the world has prepared good for me. He's prepared good works for me to walk in. Then for the rest of your day, you should be looking. Where's the good works that God has prepared for me? Where are they? Because Paul says you should walk in them. God has put them before you. The question is, will you walk in them? 
Will you walk in the good works that he has prepared for you? You ever been, uh, this happens to me all the time where it's like you're so busy or something and like you miss an opportunity to do something right in the name of Jesus. It's like, I was doing this, I was doing this. I was like, dude, you just passed up an opportunity. God had prepared that opportunity for me to minister to somebody and I didn't walk in it. Which brings us back to where we began. Paul says, you have a halakha in chapter two, verse one. And your halakha is an evil halakha. It's an evil walk. You walk in the deadness of sin. But now you're a new creature, creature made alive. And now you have a new halakha, a new walk in which you are to walk in the good works that God has prepared for you. It's a whole turnaround. Went from really bad news to really good news. Now there's a thousand different implications of what this new walk should look like. But I just want to, want to cover three as we close and the ushers can begin passing out communion. What does the new halakha, the new walk look like? A thousand different ways, but let's focus on three. First, our new walk should be one of thankfulness. And if you've been coming here a long time, you know I bring this up every few months. I think it's absolutely critical. The will of God for your life is for you to be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, the will of God in Christ is for you to be thankful. So I always joke around and say, I know the will of God for your life. Oh, what is it? Tell me, pastor, what's the will of God for my life? To be thankful. 1 Thessalonians, but to be thankful. Now, why is that so important? Because your new walk walks in thanksgiving because you knew where you once were. You were dead, buried, an enemy of God. And God who was rich in mercy showed you his grace and his mercy and brought you out of the grave. So no matter where you're at in life, whether you're a good time or a bad time, you were saved. That's a miracle. It is easier to part the Red Sea than it is to make a rebellious heart love God. If you are a follower of Jesus today, you are a living, walking, breathing miracle. Every second of your life is a miracle. Every millisecond of every second of every minute of every hour, every day, every month, every year, every decade is a miracle. Because there's no way in the world you should be a follower of Jesus. But God showed you grace. You are a living, walking, breathing miracle. And so what does the new walk look like? It looks like one of thankfulness. Second, we touched on this before, it's, it's a walk of humility. You walk in humbleness. Why? because you don't get to look down upon anyone anymore. It's not an option. Why? Because you were dead in the grave. C.S. Lewis says, um, to avoid a man's society or to, to avoid a man's company would be a kind of modern way of saying it. To avoid a man's company because that man is ugly, poor, or dumb is bad enough. But to avoid a man's company because he is wicked with the all but inevitable implication that you are somehow less wicked is dangerous and disgusting. You were dead. God showed you grace. So you walk humbly. You know your place in the world. And again, that's not to say you don't look at behaviors that are inappropriate or damaging to the cause of Christ. You, you look at them critically and you speak truth, but you don't speak to them arrogantly as if you arrive to your conclusions because you're so awesome. You arrive at them because of Christ crucified. So you walk humbly. 
And lastly, the new walk is one that works harder. And this is how a proper understanding of grace works. Grace is free, but it changes you. It changes your desires. You no longer are the child of wrath who desires the evil things. You say, I want to do good. Doesn't mean you do good all the time. Doesn't mean you're perfect. You're, you're still got all these problems, okay? But grace begins to change your will to desire the good works that God has prepared for you. And so if you're a Christian and you're a new creation, your walk is different. And you should be looking, what has God prepared for me? Because God has prepared things for me to do before the foundations of the world. And as I do those things, I am partnering with Christ to minister to a world in desperate need of his saving grace. So your new walk should be a host of things different. I don't know them all, but I know it should be one of thankfulness, one of humility, and one that works and walks in the works that God has prepared. Now, as we prepare to enter into communion, I want to go back to the image one last time. Because again, there's many of us, and I know this from talking with so many people as a pastor, that um, it's very difficult for us to believe in the grace and mercy of God. And so as a church, we need to remind ourselves of this often and regularly because there's tons of stuff. Again, if we were to project your life, so man, you don't know the, the, the things I've done. You don't know the things that have been done to me. You don't know my faults, my failures, my shame. You don't know how I messed up here. I'm a horrible person. I'm a horrible parent. I'm a horrible spouse. You don't know. What you have to remind yourself of is grace is not dependent upon human achievement. God being rich in mercy, the king of glory leaves the throne, gets his hands dirty, takes up the shovel and starts to dig. And he digs until he reaches you. And then he digs you out of that grave and rakes patiently for you to calm. And then he takes you out and puts you on a new foundation, a new ground. And then the last piece of that image, which is so important for those of you who do not believe God's mercy can do that for you. God then takes your sin, your shame, your faults, and your failures, and he kills them. He throws them in your former coffin, reburies them, and packs the dirt down tight. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just save you. He's the slayer of your sin and buries you and packs that stuff down tight. So you are a new creation in Christ, seated in the heavenlies with Christ, washed clean and forgiven. There is now therefore no condemnation. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he says, this is my body broken for you, his death for your life. Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. My body broken is what saves you. And the blood of the new covenant says, you are to drink this and proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. And so, Jesus, we want to proclaim your death and resurrection, and we want to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. 
before the foundations of the world. Our prayer team will be up here for anyone who wants to pray or talk through things. My encouragement to you today is there might be some of you here today that Christ has, man, he got the shovel and he's down there and you're flipping out still. You don't gotta understand everything. You don't gotta have it all figured out. You just gotta trust just enough to take his hand. Own up to your sin and own up to the fact that he is rich in mercy and died on the cross on your behalf. Maybe today is the day that you submit your will to his will. Take yourself off the throne and put him on it. Let's pray as we close. Father God, we wanna give you thanks for your mercy, for your grace. We wanna thank you that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We wanna thank you that you dug us from the pit, you dug us from the grave. We wanna thank you for new life and new creation. Lord, I pray that this church individually and corporately continues to grow in our ability to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to remain committed. Help us to be faithful because you are faithful. Lord, we confess our sins, our ongoing sins, and we put them before you knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us. Thank you that our sins, past, present, and future, were slain by the cross, nailed to it. And in the death of your son, Jesus, the death of our sin occurred. And so, Lord, we love you. We give you thanks. Reveal to us the works that you have prepared for us to walk in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful day.